0: Welcome to episode seven of Down the Rabbit Hole, a heavy metal metal baseball podcast where we go out, we talk uh, high-level baseball concepts or baseball concepts in general, try to drill down, make them accessible, make them uh, easy to understand for everybody out there, and also in general, just talk about the game of baseball because it's fun. And uh, today, we have uh, Colin Hetzler on our podcast. Colin, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me
0: not a problem start with everything like we do everything else uh run us through your 101 the bio uh who you are who you work with what got you there uh, so we know a little bit more about you before we drill drill down
1: okay right on um so um Colin Hessler grew up in Fort Worth Texas uh right now I'm the complex hitting coordinator for the New York Mets uh this is my first year uh, with the Mets in first year in pro ball. Um, for the three previous years, I was uh, hitting trainer at driveline baseball um, and just kind of like a quick breakdown on how I got there. Um, graduated high school in 2008. And then I took a walk-on spot at Galveston College in fall of 09. Uh, and then fall of 09, I uh, was going, having a decent fall. And then four weeks in uh, to our fall practice, Hurricane Ike hits the island um just decimates everything no field no dorms no housing um had to evacuate missed six weeks of uh class as well as practice in our entire fall season uh came back down there six weeks later and it was just like uh pretty surreal dude like you're going over the causeway and then you see uh, like boats on the median and uh, like looters will be shot signs everywhere and like Walmart was the only place that had, uh, well, it was basically the only thing that was open. We had Walmart and you had one restaurant. We got to our apartment and uh, we we're on the third floor. And the first floor was like completely just gutted down to the studs and the framing. It was, it was surreal. Um, but it ended up being out good, turnout out well for me because we had a bunch of guys from like New York, Puerto Rico and uh, DR on the team. And then after the, storm hit uh, a lot of those guys were like "Yo, like i'm not coming back to that like no thanks so a bunch of like scholarship money opened up and i I was able to get put on that semester which was cool um so played two years there um did pretty well and i played two years of division one ball at houston baptist university uh it's a very small mid-major in southwest side of houston um graduated there in 2013 with uh uh Bachelor's degree in communications and journalism, as well as a bachelor's degree in business marketing and management. Um, and from there, went and played overseas for a year in Australia, as uh, in a in the New South Wales State League, um, just a glorified men's league. And I played there for probably half a season, and I uh, got to the point where I was like, "Okay, this is this is a waste of time," um, and so it made it a lot easier to hang them up. And so from there, I started coaching. Basically, immediately after that, um, I went back to my alma mater at HBU, uh, and I was an assistant coach there for the 15, 16, and 17 seasons. Um, and then in May of 17, uh, graduated with my MBA uh, from HBU. And then about six months later, I started working at driveline. And so I was there for three years, and then here I am.
0: Was the, just my curiosity as a, as a person who is completely fascinated with the stuff that goes on at Driveline Academy, um, was the interest from Be- Driveline them to you or you to them?
1: It was me to them. Um, so I had, a, I had a buddy that I had played summer ball with. His name is Max Gordon. He's now the director, the assistant director of player development up there. Um, we played together in Canada for one year in the summer of 2011. And, um, for the Swift Current Indians of the Western Major Baseball League. Uh, We were also roommates that summer. So we were just uh, like kept in touch, followed each other's careers, um, and then both ended up going into coaching. Um, And then I think in 2015 and 16, um, I was at HBU and then Gordo was coaching at Feather River Junior College uh, in Northern California. So we ended up coaching a team together in – the summer of 15 in the Oregon Collegiate Baseball League. Um, and then from there, we just kept in touch. And then my last year at HBU in 17, he had just gotten brought on at Driveline. And at that point, that was like kind of when Driveline was starting to get like some notoriety and some popularity to where, you know, I was a, I was a graduate assistant. So I was just doing the camp circuit to make ends meet. And I was just talking to a bunch of different uh, coaches from a bunch of different schools and their, you know, talking about how these, you know, they've got their guys throwing these like weighted plyo balls and everyone's got to throw them from their ear and it's really weird, but seems to be working. It was kind of tight. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a buddy that works with me. Um, so I ended up going and visiting up there right after I graduated in grad school, May of 17. One, um, to just like go and see what it was like. Um, and two, to just like go and play golf with Gordo um and i got up there and i was like whoa like this is this is something like they're on they're on to something here um and so i just talked to gordo i was like yo like do you think you guys are hiring He was like i don't know let me ask and he calls me back uh like a couple days later and he's like yo we're we're not hiring like so like sorry like if anything opens up like i'll I'll holler at you um And so over those six months, I was just, like, day trading during the day and then bartending at night. And that was right after I finished my uh, grad school. And he hits me up, like, six months later, and he was like, yo, it's time. Pack your bags. Like, we got an opening. And I was like, all right, bet. So I, like, went through the interview process and my application in. Uh, and two weeks later, I'm just throwing all my stuff into my Jeep and then just mobbed it from Fort Worth up to Seattle. And, like, three weeks later, I was I was there. Um, and then the rest are hit, rest is history that was early 2018 when that happened
0: what and this is my here again. curiosity um coming from I think like every one of us here as long as you, we've been in the game the stuff the driveline was doing and what they had access to is like is, is, it was like magic right I mean it, it, it seems like it was magic I mean yeah I
1: mean it was just like it was just so much different. Than anything i had been exposed to um you know guys are training on the on the heater machine or the vila machine every day you see a different pitch every day you got to hit this pitch with four different bats um and they just start tracking stuff it's so like all right so like this is how hard you hit the ball on average this is your hardest hit ball um like you do well with this bat you don't do well with this bat so like here's your program and at that at that point in time it was just uh, Ochart, Gordo, and Stokey, um, just working the floor in, in 2 4, and they were just coming up with just outrageous, uh, like pr- programs. They're like, got guys doing up, down, down, up, mound, down, mound stuff for T work, and uh, it was pretty surreal. But I mean, it's it was like kind of in the early stages of whenever they started, it was like 17, I think the driveline hitting started in late 16 so they're still in year one whenever i went and visit up there but i mean intuitively it just made too much sense like i i remember thinking back then man when i played like if i saw anything over 94 i was completely overpowered and, like i got intimidated and i couldn't i couldn't handle it and i would just take excuse me swings and i because i'd never seen them before it wasn't something that you see very often at that time um these guys are seeing it every day and they're taking 37 ounce bats and they're getting them around and just like hammering balls. Um, so it's just the environment of like, Hey, we're going to face below every day. We're going to face it with heavy bats. And like, if you fail, you're just going to fail until you figure it out. Um, it just made too much sense to me. And that was the first time I'd ever seen a hit tracks first time I'd ever like seen the concept of, you know, training bats. Um, you know, at that time it was this, the speed trainers and the hit tracks was all that they had. Like they hadn't had hitting mocap yet. There was no vest. there weren't even any blast yet. Um, so it was like, it was very progressive for the time but looking back, it was, it was like for driveline it was still very primitive. Um, but at the same time, it was still very effective. That
2: makes me think of, uh, so I was a teacher for 10 years and it makes me think of the research that's available between active learning and, and creating environments that allow active learning and allow students to kind of learn and push through failure on their own instead of trying to go rescue them, as opposed to lecturing. Like lecturing is always the preferred method by the student because it's the easiest way to intake information. However, it's not the most effective. And it's almost like with coaching, you create these active learning environments and let them figure it out and, and learn through failure, as opposed to, I'm going to be super hands-on and throw Q salad, and we're going to make you feel, we're going to give you false confidence because you can crush it off of a team and hit the ball 100 miles an hour off the foot toss.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like the longer, the longer that I do this, the more I realize like the, the best coaches are the ones that say the very least. They don't say anything. They let athletes figure it out on their way. Um, and they just like put themselves, put their athletes in an, in an environment that facilitates the desired outcome that they want. Uh, and, you know, it's very it's very hands off until if they do have something to say, then the athlete starts to listen because, oh, this guy, he doesn't give me feedback, you know, all the time, every pitch. So if he's got something for me, he he's probably got something serious or something very helpful. So I, I think that um, is just going to be even even more so the case, um, you know, going into, you know, more and more years of experience coaching wise it's like just let the guys figure it out. And if you have something and you know that you have something instead of just like throwing stuff against the wall and hoping it sticks, then your athletes are more likely to be receptive to it um, because you're not coming up with some different cue or being some like drill monkey every single day.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, like the whole emphasis of, of this episode, kind of going into the meat and or thing is, is hitting technology. Uh, so with our first question, what do you think are the most essential pieces of hitting tech? Like if you're starting out, like like let's use the town that we're in, Amarillo College is, is starting a brand new baseball program, and and let's say you got that job, like what are the pieces of tech that you're going to bring in first?
1: Uh, let's, so if I if I get the head job at Amarillo CC and, and my budget is like pretty slim, uh, I'm I'm gonna buy four or five blast sensors, uh, and then I'm gonna get initial data on every single one of my hitters. And then and then I'm go from there. Um, And and then from there, like if I have any any budget left over from Blast, I'll probably go and get just training bats. Probably go and get a spin ball machine and some speed trainers and a long and short bat. And then just a just a whole mess of plyos. Um, And then from there, like we're not gonna be able to track exit velocity, but we'll we'll be able to track how far you get in a plyo, how fast you can move the bat. And then from there, like, you know, ball flight will be our feedback in terms of bat at ball data. But uh, I think BLAST is such a valuable tool um, at such like a pretty moderate pricing point, price point. Um, It just gets, it spits out so much information and the the information that it spits out, like you can infer an athlete's bat at ball data or you can infer an athlete's like heat map according to what is BLAST metrics say.
0: One of the questions we get from our own guys and even some parents that watch us do what we're doing, and you just mentioned it here, you said one of your key pieces of equipment is a plyo ball. All right, explain. To us, explain to us Warren, for people who are listening, you know, for the dad in the uh, backyard, right? That he he's, he's giving flippies to his son. Yeah, you know, why why would why should he invest in plyo balls, and why is that one of your preferred pieces of, of, of tech?
1: I, I think the the best thing about plyos is that. They're just harder to square up than a baseball. Like you, you, if you don't, if you don't hit it flush, perfectly flush, it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, it's going to completely lose its shape. The athlete's going to see it. He's going to feel it, um, and you're not going to get that desired ball flight. Mean, it was like the one of the first things that I did with the Mets. Um, I spent three weeks at their DR Academy in March before spring training started, and for early work every day, we would go to a half field and we would do plyo home run derby. And the first couple of days, the guys hated it, hated it. They, like, it got to the point where, like, each plyo, each driveline plyo ball, the, the darker that the ball gets, the heavier that it gets. And the heavier that it gets, the more difficult it is to square up. And by the end of day one, we would have all of our uh, DR Academy guys just taking the the heavy blue ball. there's just, like, automatic take. They're not even going to try and swing at it. They're just like asking for pink and grays. Like, no, dude, you already hit all those over the fence. These are all, these are the only ones we have left. And then by the end of the camp, they're like actively asking for the dark, heavy blue ball because only two guys have put it out so far. And they want to be in the club that has, hey, I put the blue ball out today. Like, I'm going to have a good day today. So it's just like the reason that they're effective is just because it's they're difficult to square up. So your attack angle has got to be on point. Your bat path has got to be on point. You're going to have to uh, work the bat through contact. Um, and it just gives you such good feedback from swing to swing if you're the hitter. Like If you clip a ball and you slice it, you're going to know because the ball is not going to go anywhere. Um, I mean, it's just once you see them and you use them, that's that's how I got the the coaches in the DR to buy And I was like, yeah, let me flip you like three or four. You try and hit a home run, and then they like take three or four swings and they just completely cut uh, like the light blue ball and it stays in the it stays in the dirt and they're like, oh okay, this makes sense. I like this, and and all you gotta do is just try them. Like they're not they're not even they're not that expensive. If you get like a you know like an, an athlete set of like a bucket's worth, it's so much better than wiffle balls or you know whatever else there is um i mean that's that's going to be a staple in in whatever program or organization i'm with like our guys are going to hit flyers almost all the time and it doesn't require any coaching it just requires them hey man square it up i guess that's the real
2: so if you're uh probably one of the biggest problems that that we always hear we see is like how do you you scale out tech like so when the first um, purchase I ever made was a blast sensor at an ABCA. So I bought one sensor for my entire program. And we had these Excel spreadsheets that we, like, if us three were partners, you would be hitting, i have the pad and, and, and coach's phone and Jared over here would have the radar gun. So we would hit and then I would hit bat speed, attack angle and exit velocity. Uh, and we would just do, we would take 10 swings at a time. Yeah, and that's what we did. So, like, how how can people scale out tech? Uh, I mean, that that's kind of the hard way to do it. It was hard after practice going and trying to type in all these kids' handwriting. So that's yeah. the most effective way to do it. But what what are some better ideas of how to how to scale out tech for like a high school coach or a small college?
1: Well, let's say so. Let's say you've got twenty hitters, right? And you've got and you've got one blast. Um, let's say you've got four groups of five or five groups of four. We'll say. For, we we'll say five groups of four and that way you get blast each group one guy you get one guy in each group per day that way you get five guys a week and then every four weeks you just keep getting one guy a day and then from there each guy can get their retest every uh every week so everyone's going to swing with a blast every week once a week and then from there we'll be able to track weekly progress. Um, and if you're doing it right, like you should be able to get 40 or 50 swings uh, on each kid each day. And then from there, like you know, you can you can put up leaderboards. This is who moves the bat the fastest. This has got the lowest time to contact. This is go, this is the guy that's got the most or highest rotational acceleration, or is the most consistent attack angle. Uh, and then from there, like it almost. Uh, data very rarely lies. Like the the best players are gonna have the fastest bat speed, or your most consistent uh, line drive hitters are gonna have the most consistent attack angles, or you know your toughest outs are gonna have the lowest time of contacts, generally speaking. So it's just like it's just like hope gives gives guys a, a better idea of exactly where they're at and, and how they compare to their peers.
2: Well, you can also now like you can label the end of each session now, right? Instead of yeah. having instead of being a, a dealer like me and writing everything by hand.
1: Yeah. The, I mean, the blast app has come a long ways as well. Like you can, you can go back and in and, and go and look at peaks and averages for, for each guy in each session, um, just like straight up on the iPad. And then you can just print off your leaderboards straight from blastconnect.com. So it's, I mean, it's gotten a lot easier in the last, you know, four or five years. Um, I remember when I was coming out of, uh, grad school at HBU, um, that was the first time I had ever heard of Blast, Uh, And I had seen a couple of commercials of, uh, I think I was watching some Astros games and Carlos Correa. And and I think George Springer were plugging blast. Um, I may have it on the internet somewhere, but at the time I was about to start working at a facility in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And so I go to the owner facility and I was like, yo, like this is something that I really want. And I want to start using. Um, I didn't ever end up working there. um, So I didn't ever end up getting a blast there, but, uh, got plenty of experience with blast. whenever I got up to Seattle. Well, then also, uh, like, you know, not, I, I would
2: say not every school can probably afford a, a Rapsodo or a Hittrex, but I imagine a lot of schools have a radar gun. So it's very easy to get exit velocity readings with, with a radar gun and kind of thinking, uh, you know, have come in with different uses for different pieces of tech, um, or even like all the kids have cell phones, like every single kid in every group could shoot a slow mo video of, of their swing and then send it to you yep. uh, as the coach. Like if you don't have the budget to to get things out, there's other ways to
1: do it. Yeah, I mean there's always, there's always a there's always a way to do it. Like you just gotta find a way. Like uh, if you've got a radar gun or even a pocket radar, like you can buy a pocket radar for a couple hundred bucks at this point, and like it, it may not be as accurate as a stalker but it's something. And if, if you're only using in pocket radar, then like your baseline is always the same. Um, so there's a way, there are plenty of ways that you can be data driven on, on a budget and like pocket radar, blast, machine, plyos. And even there, like you can make, this is what we would tell a lot of our online hitters whenever I was at DriveLine. So like, look, man, you can make your own speed trainers. Like get three old bats, get a bunch of nickels and some athletic tape and make yourself a uh, barrel loaded bat and a handle loaded bat and then find one of your old drop tens and there's your underload, or find a fungo. And then now we can get to work. It's like not exactly perfect. in Like what we would recommend, but it's better than nothing. So, I mean, it's just a matter of being open to, to trying different things.
2: Um, if you're a high school coach, uh, I'd recommend going and talking to the tennis coach because they throw away tons of tennis balls every year. So- yep. An cutter and cut those open and fill them full of sand and then duct tape them. And you can just get yeah. your own set of final balls.
1: Yeah, and that was another thing that our uh, our director of hitting at the time, who's now a big league hitting coach, Chief was he was telling us during spring training to try uh, feeding tennis balls through the mini hack. Um, and sure enough, we tried it and they come out differently every time. So it's just like a great um, adjustability type of practice. To where sometimes it cuts, sometimes it sinks, sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it gets on in on you really quick. Um, and our guys loved it. Yeah, like we had some of our some of our top prospects would just stay in the tennis ball cage all morning, just because they like the challenge of it. And it was, I mean, it was great. We found that uh,
2: mini hack attack is pretty nasty with wiffle balls.
1: Yeah, I haven't tried that yet. I'm gonna have to try it now, though.
2: Yeah, it'll it'll yeah. Grip and
1: rip some some wiffle balls pretty filthy. We're gonna shove a couple of plyos through it tomorrow and see what happens.
2: That's what we want. We want to do, but it, I mean, it's not our facility. We're renting cages out of someone else's facility. We're kind of ex- afraid it'll like rip it apart, and then we'll have that gray. Yeah, they
1: have the sandy beads everywhere.
2: Yeah. Well, with with this advent of
0: technology, again, I don't know if you've listened to what we do here. We're definitely gonna go off whatever script we provided you. Um, there is a natural hesitancy, and, and we've experienced in our end. To adopt this technology, even as it becomes more affordable, uh, even as it becomes more accessible and easier to use, um, your your professional opinion: What is this hesitancy that you're seeing, and, and maybe why is this hesitancy, hesitancy to adopt these 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 uh,
1: methods? Um, that's a good question, man. I think I think for the most part, it's like guys are just like. For lack of a better word, they're scared of what they don't know. Um, or they're just uh just not open to to learning anything new. They're comfortable with, with what they what they know and what they've always done. Um, which isn't necessarily wrong either. Like the more that you do this stuff, like the more you realize like good coaches, like generally speaking, their intuition is correct. Um but you have to be a good coach though first and then like even if your intuition is correct like you still can't measure it like all you can say is better or worse or eh, i don't know it's about the same but with the tech like you can actually measure stuff to where it's tangible and you can like really put some actual like consistent objective data behind it um i don't know i, I think i i think on uh you know on the higher levels of like college and professional baseball some of the guys that um you know are not particularly against it but just like haven't chosen to implement it um it's just it's just more work for them right and so they feel like they've got enough shit to do it's like man i've got i've got a hula the outfield i've got a meeting with the ad i've got to cut i've got to edge the cuts i've got to drag i got a water like i got a call and fundraise like i've got all this other stuff to do like i don't, I don't have time to learn this new stuff um even me, like I've got a buddy that's a very successful um, high school coach in Fort Worth, and he's a very knowledgeable, very smart, knows the game, excellent game manager. Um, and I was like, yo, dude, like you should, you should get set up with some of this stuff. Like it could really help your program development-wise. And he was like, yeah, I'm like, I know I should, man. But, you know, like when it's off season, we've got an hour. We've you know, got 25 guys um and like most of the time all we can really even do is just like play catch and and maybe be able to hit a little bit and then whenever we're in season like we're playing all the time and it's just like there's just no way that I can implement this stuff uh and I was like well I mean I I see your point but there's always a way you just like you know it all just kind of depends on where your priorities are like and it, it is tough for for a lot of coaches because their main objective is to win games, right? Like if you don't, if you're a coach at a number of like almost every program, if you don't win games, like you're gone. So their, their main priority is, is like finding a way to win. Um, and I think the disconnect there is like, well, the the more that you can develop your players, the more likely you are to win games. So I think it's just kind of a disconnect uh, in terms of perspective for coaches.
2: I think it's with anything, uh, you know, having to go through and implement technology is, is painful in, in any uh, profession. Uh, when I was a teacher, one of my last years teaching, the, the school district decided to, well, no more textbooks, all textbooks are going to be online. Uh, and so we had to go through the the pain of now every kid has to carry a laptop, all their textbooks are going to be online now. And I, it was just painful to have to, to implement that because, like we didn't have the infrastructure to support that many kids on the server. Like it was just, it it was a pain. And I think that's where some coaches see that. And they're just like, you know, I don't want to have to go through uh, and and grind through some of those, those steps to have to figure out how to implement it efficiently when I could just keep doing what I'm already doing.
1: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And and for the most part, like guys are going to, it's always, almost everyone's going to take the path of least resistance too. So it's just like kind of human nature to, to find the, the easiest way to do things. Um, I think you're kind of an outlier if you if you go and seek out new things that are challenging um, that, you know, may initially be difficult. Um, but generally speaking, like those, those are the guys that the outliers are the, the high performers. So, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, pig and choose. One
0: of the things that we hear on our end, and this is, you know, beneficial for the, for all players is coaches don't need that information anyway, right? We, we've heard that as a criticism. A coach doesn't need that. You know, if you guys are, or if you guys are collecting data on your players, then coaches can't use that information at the next level. What, if any uh, of these evaluations that you guys, or this information that's out there, uh, are you guys, are you guys using this to evaluate prospects uh, as they come in, uh, as a go to a promotion or, or is it just to make them better? Or is it, or you guys use an evaluation tool? Uh,
1: I, I think the majority of um, organizations have started using them as an evaluation tool. Um, just like hard metrics on, on how good a guy is, how fast can he move the bat, how hard can he hit the ball, you know, how consistent is he within this X range of, uh, you know, ball trajectory and i think the more comfortable that some of these orgs are getting with it the more they're using it in terms of uh using it to develop their players rather than evaluate their players because uh, and i think that's the biggest thing is like if you you collect all this data on all these players and then you don't show it to them like of course they're not going to want to use it or not be bought in because you're not showing them their own data so it's like it, it, I think it's very, very important to be completely transparent. And it's like, look, man, like major league bass speed average, 74. Right now you're at 68. So like you got six miles an hour to go in bass speed until your like average bass speed is on par with a big league. And just like that in itself inherently is going to motivate that guy. It's like, okay, well, shit, I've got work to do. I don't move the bat as fast as a big leaguer. So I need to like start booking it. Um, and that's the one thing that we've started to do, like I'll I'll hand a guy an iPad and have him walk into the cage with it and it's like, all right, after every swing, I want you to check and see where your basket is. I want you to stay above 70 miles an hour every time. And if you don't, I want you to think about why you didn't, and then get back over. Or whatever metric it could be, like rotational acceleration or on plane efficiency or or uh, attack angle, whichever one you want them to focus on, like they can get immediate feedback from pursuing the swing as long as you just show them the data and then from there like then their practice starts to become a game and you know inherently you're going to want to win the game so it just makes them a little bit more uh, a little more focused the practice becomes a little bit more deliberate um and then at the same time you're just like educating these guys on on what's good and what's bad um so like whenever we would do uh bp on the field usually we would have our our last round it's like all right one swing, you got to hit it over hundred and you got to hit it over 10 degrees. If you do that, you get another swing. And if you keep doing it, you can hit forever. And so from there it's like, guys have an objective goal. You got to hit it hard. You got to hit it above 10. Uh, and if I do that, then I get rewarded with another swing. And then all of a sudden like guys get hot and like the guys that they're hitting with, like, are like starting to get a little energy out them. And they're like, Oh dude, like how many in a row is you going to get? Um, and it just kind of the energy just kind of starts to build and it, it just feeds it, like everyone feeds off of it. Um, so I think the more that we can use this different technology, whether it's, you know, a, a bad sensor or a bad ball data or whatever it is, as part of practice and part of your development, rather than just collecting data on our players and never showing it to them, I think the players are going to be more bought in. To the coaches and they're that like trust level is going to be a lot higher compared to hey let me get your K vest so i can look at it and never show it to you like that's not that's not going to do anyone any good that's
2: a uh, that's kind of organizational specific i i uh my my brother-in-law wanted to test out the rap soto and so we we were in abilene texas and we went to a facility and just ran out of cage well there was a a pitcher there throwing a bullpen from another organization and we started talking to him and he wanted to see what we were doing and we asked him if his organization used data and he said they do but it's a hundred dollar fine if i asked to look at it
1: yeah that's insane that's absolutely ridiculous
2: and so, yeah, it was, it, it was, I didn't, that was one of my first kind of eye-opening things about pro ball is I couldn't, I, I couldn't understand why. And then you started looking at the economic side and then they kind of use it for arbitration purposes and stuff. So then that, I mean, it kind of makes sense because it's still a business, but at the same time, like would, why wouldn't you want to shorten the feedback cycle for these athletes that are trying to get better?
1: Right. Or if you're trying to implement all of these different pieces of tech and you can't get players to buy in, not showing them any of their data probably has a lot to do with why they don't want to buy in because they don't trust any of the process because they don't have a say in it. They don't know what's going on. They don't know where they stand. I mean, like it's literally their data. It's how they're moving about how they're hitting the ball, how their body is moving. So like, sure, you can use it in arbitration, but if you want this kid to get better, you should probably walk him through what's going on rather than just like looking at it yourself, giving him three different drills and him not having any context for why he has those drills.
2: Well that's that's one of the arguments that are going on right now is like who who owns that data? Like is it, is it really the player's data or is it the organization or is it the company who made the product? Is it like is that data
1: proprietary? I mean I, I, I don't know that. yeah, legal answer to, I don't know the actual legal answer to that but I mean I'm going to player like if the if the profile says Colin Hetzler then hey, that's my data that's literally how I am moving or hitting or swinging so like I, I don't know how that is is worked on or like written out in in contracts or the current CBA but I would imagine it would be a, a relatively large talking point in next CBA, which I think is coming up after the season. So,
2: yeah, I, mean, I think that question is definitely above our payroll. I just it, it's just a complex issue of like what whose data is it and what what should be done with it.
1: Yeah, it's like yeah, I don't even remember if I have to hit uh, like uh, an agree to terms whenever I use Blaster or Epsono. Like I'm maybe I did. I don't, know, I don't even remember.
0: You think that. Uh... Some of this, especially around the world of hitting, um, still kind of revolves around the fact that it's still kind of a concept that you're either, born, you're either born with it or you or you don't have it. Right? Maybe an organization doesn't have enough confidence that they can continually develop talent that will be major league ready, you know, on a pipeline. You know, as arbitration hits and stuff like that, is that still pervasive where it's essentially this kid's got it and this kid doesn't? And the kid that doesn't will never have it, no matter how much data you show him. Uh, I land on the side of a, kind of an I'm an eternal optimist about players. I'm an eternal pessimist about everything else. But you put an athlete in front of me, and I turn into an optimist. Is is that still fairly is – that, is that an attitude that pervades uh, pro baseball? It's either this kid is a pro prospect, and this kid's a filler, and you're not going to bring him up to par? I don't
1: know. I don't know. That's a pretty good question in terms of, um, you know, it's tough to say. I, I think every org wants to do their very best to develop every single one of their players. Um, obviously your, your orgs are going to are going to be like a little bit more apt to uh, what's the word, like just pour a little more resources into guys that they, they think could really be something special, but that's where, uh, you know implementing systems to give every single hitter or, or player regardless of position uh, a fair shot in terms of we're gonna do absolutely everything we can to to help you develop because we drafted you or we signed you because you do at least one thing very very well so if we can up the rest of your skill set then like you you've got a shot to do something um i mean obviously like one percent of one percent is only are the dudes that make the big league. so it's like dodge or against basically everybody um but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to like try and max out every single guy's ceiling like you and then from there like you might catch lightning in a bottle like it's not completely crazy to to have a guy just completely turn into a dude that you select in the 17th round or the 45th round or whatever it is. I think there's only 20 rounds in the draft this year, maybe only 10, but like there are plenty of dudes that get signed out of any ball that have, that are back in the big leagues. So like, I mean, it's a, it's probably the most inexact science um, to where, you know, everyone is just trying to, to give their very best guess. And you don't know, you know, probably until four or five years down the road, if you're right or not.
2: Uh, Moving on to our next question, with with all this technology that's available, how can coaches use technology more laterally, like for other purposes? Like, for example, uh, one of the things that we, one of the very first things I ever started testing uh, when I was still at the head coach at Puaque, New Mexico, was uh, we use the blast sensor to test your hand-eye coordination for each eye. So we put the eye patch on uh your your right eye and then test your hand eye coordination your left eye while you're swinging and then we do the same thing so then we can figure out which eye was your strong eye and which eye was your weak eye so are there other ideas that you would have for coaches to use the tech more laterally
1: and get more use out of the product um i guess the first thing that comes to mind is uh you get a, a radar gun or a soto or a tracks or any type of ball flight feedback metric and see um X velocity and distance PRs with one arm swings, and to figure out which which arm is dominant, which side likes to take over, uh, and then from there you can kind of get a better idea of how that athlete likes to move, uh, where he's trying to hit the ball, which pitches he's going to be able to handle better. Um, you know, if a guy's super bottom hand dominant, then you know more than likely he's going to be able to handle everything that's down and everything that's away better than anything that he handles up or in. And then conversely, if this guy is super top hand dominant, then, you know, he's probably able to smoke balls at the top of the zone and balls in, um, and he might struggle with balls away or balls down. Um, so just getting a better idea of like which hand has the more dominant process in the swing, um, it's probably the first thing that I would do just like one handed swings with, uh, um, uh, you know, every single different bat that you can do and just track. How hard and how far are they able to hit this ball with each swing or with each arm, with each hand?
2: That's I've never heard of that. That's awesome. Yeah. I want to try that now.
1: <laughs> try it. Dude. There's uh, I think the we had a guy at driveline. He was doing these top hand swings with the barrel load bat, and he was hitting balls like 78 to 80 miles an hour. It was absurd.
0: Yes. What was the, what was was he that dominant or was he balanced? He, he was balanced. He was good with both
1: hands it was, it was actually very impressive. I was, it's like, I mean, it's going to be very difficult to pull anything with your bottom hand only. Um, But if you can do it, I mean, that's pretty impressive in itself.
2: I think one of the most underutilized pieces of technology and people might not consider it very advanced is like the pitching machine. You can use it for more than just setting it directly in front of home plate and shooting balls at people. Like you can move it off to the side. I mean, I don't see a lot of coaches that, that even use pitching machines for ground balls or catcher pop ups. It's, it's like yeah. it only has one specific use and it can only be used on one spot on the field all the time.
1: Yeah, you can use it for pop ups. You can use it for uh, ground balls. You can do, you know, if you if you don't want to hit your fungo, you can use it for line drives in the gap. Um, I mean, it's there's, and at the same time, like if you just want to gas it up to 98, if you're a high school or a college team, you're getting ready to see a guy that's like, just gas it up and have guys track pitches like, okay, you don't have to swing, but I still want you to time this up. And I want you to see 98 coming at you 40 times today. That way, whenever you see 94 in the box tomorrow, your brain is a little bit more prepared to be able to handle that. That's something that I wish I would have done more uh, whenever I was playing. Cause I wish that I would have just stepped in to see what velocity looks like more often. Um, Cause that when, whenever you go and play, Uh, a major school with dudes that are throwing fuzz you don't get intimidated I remember like I would get intimidated with anything over 94 and so it was just like you know anything below that I was pretty good but the second that I saw some like serious cheddar I was just like just didn't have a chance
0: that is that's one of the things that uh I think every now and then we stumble across some stuff and do things right intentionally and unintentionally. And, uh, you know, one of the edicts that, that me and Robert live by in our facility is weak BP makes weak hitters. And so on occasion, we pump in what we call a feel-good day, right? We're just going to throw it. We're just going to get it up there nice and easy uh, and, and make you feel good about yourself. But, you know, uh, we have guys that come in or guys going on hitting classes and stuff like that. And once, twice a week, they hate themselves and they hate baseball. They'll tell you that on the way out, right? I hate baseball. I don't want to play baseball anymore. Half joking with you. They go out in the game and they rake. Yep. And they come back and like, I want to do that again. Because yep. the environment they learned in was far more challenging than the one that they faced on the, the mound. So their, their their ability to predict, right, is as far that they can predict with greater accuracy what's going to happen. Because, it, you know, what we call rising turbo sliders that we throw to kids at ninety-two miles per hour when you're 16 years old. Well you go well you're never going to see that in a game. No, if you do, you know, we'll call you. And you guys will have a guy there's a like 16 year old throwing 92 yeah.
1: sliders down here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: From a three from a from a three quarter arm slot. But you know, that that environment does uh it does help hitters, right? And you're like you're saying, I wish i had known it as well as a frustrated baseball player, because velocity ate me up. Uh, All I did was just kind of stick my bat out there and hopefully I could punch one over a first baseman's head. Yeah,
1: same. There's just nothing but excuse me swings on anything over 94, which is just not what you want to
0: do. They didn't make a Nike uh, commercial called chicks dig uh, slappers to right field.
1: (laughs) No. No, that's right. That's what I always tell. That's what I've been telling my hitters lately. singles are for the weak and scared. (laughs) <laughs> doubles only, dude. doubles and doubles and homers only like if you want to get good at hitting doubles you have to practice hitting doubles all the time
0: um, one large argument I had is and this is just kind of like I said just an argument like a weird guy was coming in and we we're doing some live stuff and he said your guy over there is too full happy I said yeah he may be you know we're working on that but you know full side ball in the air is the greatest outcome for any batted most
1: ball valuable ball you can put in
0: play <laughs> and I said so He said, well, you know, I'd really, you know, on a situation by situation, he needs to learn to hit the ball the other way in the air. And I said, there's a value in that, you're right. I said, but if I could just teach this kid to go the other way, whenever I wanted to, why wouldn't I just go ahead and teach him to hit the ball off the wall? You know, if it was as simple as that, right? Teach that kid to hit the ball in the gap on the right side uh, between second and first. If it's just as simple as that, why would I even try to teach that? Why would I just go ahead and teach the ball over the fence?
1: Yeah, it's like we were having this we were having this conversation in the, the coach's locker room the other day. We were talking about what, how uh, somebody brought up the the team that has led the league in home runs for the past like however many years, six eight years, hasn't made the playoffs. And I was like, yeah, you know, you're right, but like that's that's not leading the league in home runs is not a bad thing. Like if you're before before the season, if you're gonna tell me, oh yeah, your team's gonna lead the lead the league in home runs. But, like yeah, I'll take it, hundred percent. And it's like another guy was like, "Yeah, you know, I don't know, man. I think run scored is run scored is all, is always what it's going to come down to." And I was like, "I mean, last I checked, every time a home run was hit, somebody scored in the history of baseball. Every time, no matter what." So it's just like such a bad it's, way it's, to it's, it. it's crazy to me that that like pulling the ball in the air has just become like so vilified to the point where like an entire generation of hitters has just, like, never practiced doing it. There's just been told that that's, like, selfish or you're pulling off or you're just spinning out. Or In reality, like, if all you can do is just serve balls the other way, like, you're probably very pushy. You've probably got a, a negative attack angle, and you're probably severely under-rotated contact. And, like, you can only live off of that for so long. Like if you want to make it to the big leagues, you got to be able to pull the fastball and hit it in the air.
2: uh, I talked about that. My thesis was like the context and the environments and even the the perception like early on, because you said it like trying to pull the ball over the wall is selfish. And that's been like the theme of power hitters since the beginning of baseball is trying to pull the ball and trying to hit a home run is is selfish. You're supposed to give up your at-bat. Rally killer.
1: Yeah. Yeah, rally killer. Home runs are rally killers it's just weird that that perspective
2: has just stayed alive for so long. And I think there's value in understanding that the argument and understanding where they're coming from. Uh, like. The whole idea that ground balls are, 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 better for turf fields. That was some other, some of the other data I presented that ground ball or batting averages on turf fields from 1984, to 1994 and, uh, batting average on grass fields were identical. There was no advantage to hitting on a turf field as opposed to a, uh grass field
1: and so right. what was the average fastball in the 80s like 87
2: <laughs> i don't know if it was yeah it was it was it was like a changeup I think it was yeah. the average fastball in the 80s.
1: yeah just like average fastball in the in, in the big leagues this year is like 94 and you got you got dudes throwing 98 mile an hour cutters you got dudes throwing 99 mile an hour sinkers so like I mean it's gonna be really tough to string five or six singles through the, right, through the opposite field side against pitching like that. So because I you're, you're think just the, natural, the natural reaction is like, all right, if we're going to score any runs, like we're going to have to bang the ball around the arc. Because it's like try, trying to hit six singles in a row against 100-mile-an-hour cutters is like very difficult and unlikely.
0: Well, yeah, and you see – it gives a frustration just from – the cheap seats now occupy, occupy the cheap seats, obviously, but you know, they put a shift on a guy like Freddie Freeman to go, he should just go the other way. You get up there and do that. Right. The guy's throwing a 29 mile an hour cutter. You go place the ball gently in the left field to see how effective you are at it.
1: Especially when they're busting him on the inner half. Cause right. it's like, what are we doing? like? It's, it's, it's way more difficult than people realize or give anyone credit for. And like, they're absolutely like basketball skills is extremely valuable. Uh, being able to control the bat head uh, and, and facilitate a good team offense is like obviously very important. But if you don't have anyone that can thump, you're probably not going to score very many runs. Now, and going back to this idea, like you said, the team with the most home
0: runs, they didn't make the playoffs as a point of validation that this is not an effective way. Well, you know what in your organization deGrom's not a great pitcher, right? Because I look at his win loss, you know. Uh, you know, let's, let's throw out run support and stuff like that. He just must not be a good pitcher because based upon a metric I can find provable, right? His win loss isn't great always.
1: Right. So it's just like you gotta look at everything in a proper context. And it was like, all right, we led the league in bombs. We we're probably somewhere in the top half of run the court, but who knows? Like, did we did we play defense? Did we did we pitch? How was our bullpen? Like, there's so many different parts of the game to where it's it's tough to just make blank statements like that, especially in baseball. Like, there there are ab- never any absolutes in baseball other than well, – I
2: say except, except for the physics
1: of it. So, except for the what? Except for the physics. Right.
0: You got me there. <laughs> <laughs> there's no absolutes in baseball except that absolute.
2: <laughs> that we just laid out there, right? Well, I, w- <laughs> I would agree with like, – I think a lot of times people tend to make arguments like black and white, not understanding that there's so much more complexity than you're a launch angle guy or you're a non-launch angle guy. Like there's there's so much more to it than than just diminishing it down to two sides of the argument.
1: Right. Exactly. It's like, okay, well he he hit it hard. Uh, let's say, okay, he hit it 105, and he hit it 20. So like 105 at 20 is almost always a hit, but I what was the spray angle? If you hit it to dead center field, it could be an F eight. So are you gonna call that a bad at bat just because he he hit it to dead center? Like I'll take 105 at 20 every single time. Like or, or Kai's will always come up and, and they'll mention the the hardest hit ball uh, ever I think was John was Carlos Stanton, like 121 and it was just, it was like a six three or a six four to three double play. I was like, all right, that's fine, but, like, I'll take I'll take 120 exit velocity over 93 every single time, no matter what. Like, just one occurrence, and there's only one occurrence because it's, so it's so difficult to hit the ball that hard. Don't well, it's
2: that outcome versus process. They look at the one outcome and say, look, we were right the whole time instead of that. That's just a happenstance. Like, it's right. not. Instead of just being
1: in being in awe of somebody that can hit the ball that hard, that's insane.
0: Well, that, that goes to question number four and leads into that is, you know, what aspects of hitting are are currently being measured that should be? And I kind of asked that thing in light of, and Robert said the, the 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 terrible word around baseball right now, which is launch angle. Right. Never mind, every batted ball in history has a launch angle. Yeah. You know that MLB. What was it, of, of Pena, showing how hitting coaches are somehow making this U, which I don't know where he got that.
1: I'm not. I'm not sure either. Which is which is hilarious. If you go back and you watch Carlos Pena swing, there's just like probably like a 30 attack angle on that guy. It's just like the biggest uppercut you've ever seen.
0: Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So what is what is you know we so obviously the, the entirety of talk right now around hitting is you know launch angle is the reason why hitters are struggling what is the aspect of, of, of hitting that we're not talking about? What metric are we not measuring or looking at that we should be paying more attention to?
1: That's a good question, man. I, I think if we can find a way, um, and there may be some companies out here that already do this, that I'm just not privy to, but I think if, if we can start measuring direction, um, just like bat path direction. Um, and then also like, We've got vertical bat angle right now. I would be interested to know like horizontal bat angle um, in relationship to the angle that the pitch is coming in. Um, that would be another one that's interesting. Um, force plate data obviously is going to be one that more and more organizations and, and companies and facilities are, are going to be diving into. I know the Astros do a really good job with force plate data. Justin Stone's got a huge force plate database. Um, Driveline is going to be very, very close to just being the the cutting edge in that with their new uh, with their new mocap lab to where they're going to have force plates in both batter's box and the mound. Um, And they're going to be able to get mocap on everything and pair with force plates data. Um, That's going to be one. And then just like vision tracking and and visual acuity and and perceptual cues um, is going to be another one. I mean, we kind of started to dive into that at driveline a little bit while I was there. Um, Rachel Balkovic and Kyle Lindley both just ran an awesome gaze tracking study um, in terms of, you know, where do hitters look whenever the pitchers in their windup, where are they actually looking uh, whenever the pitchers at ball release? um, You know, how close are they to actually looking at the ball as it's coming in? Um, And there's just so much we don't know about that kind of stuff to where, you know, the, the, the further we go down this rabbit hole, the more we're going to know. Um, and I think the more we know, you know, the more, the more efficient our training for hitters is going to be, but, um, you know, I, I guess that would, that would, that would be my short answer would be direction horizontal bad angle would be interesting to me. Um, and then also, you know, force play data and, and gaze optimization data.
0: Is that, is that, is that, is that, uh, gonna to have to come from independent facilities or you or you think there's gonna be a more a, a more of a adoption of this kind of stuff to these major league clubs or is it always gonna be up to a drive line type facility to lead the way to, to make everybody else uh realize no, the
1: I think I think major league baseball are are gonna start leading the way and certain certain ones of them already do um, I think you know they they Keep all of that information very um, close to the chest in terms of what they're doing and stuff. But uh, I mean, the Ast- Astros have done a really good job with, um, you know, pairing high-speed cameras with uh, blast data as well as um, force plates. And then, um, you know, almost every team's got a biomec lab, biomech pitching lab now. Um, so I-, I think it's just a matter of time until the rest of the teams are just. Uh, just start like sending it and, and doing everything that they possibly can to, to optimize their player performance. Um, and then all, you know, always, there's always going to be outsiders like, like a driveline or a heavy metal uh, or a hit fourth or wherever it is that is going to continually push the boundaries and try and be better. But um, I mean, MLB has got just an, an insane amount of resources. So I, I think once they realize the value of, and they probably already have, of just collecting this information to be able to make better decisions on training players and in evaluating and drafting and selecting players that um, I, I think we're really just like kind of at the tip of the iceberg right now.
2: I like, uh, I agree with the gay stuff. Yeah, like, I don't know if you've looked back into any of the like video game gays performance stuff that they use. I I, th- I think yeah. that that the major league teams could, could make leaps and bounds in, in like gay studies by like reaching out to like any of these video game companies that, that sponsor gamers and they make them wear these eye performance, uh, glasses that track what their eyes are doing across the screen and stuff. And, and basically having like a blast sensor for your eyes.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just like, I didn't know that you can train to, to be more efficient and move better. I would assume, um, so I mean there, I'm sure there's a lot of different things that, you know, are on the horizon that are just kind of in the infancy of, of what's going on right now. It's like five years ago and 20, I guess four years ago in 2017, I, I was just hearing about blast sensors for the first time. So, you know, there's always gonna be something new that's coming out that is going to be very, very helpful. Um, I just don't know what it is yet.
2: One that I've been bugging blast for and they, they told me they collected but it's proprietary is uh, force applied direction. Uh, on the sensor i think it would be i think it would be useful to know like based on the point of impact and and how that horizontal angle of of your swing arc evolves over time uh like where is that force from contact being applied into the baseball right
1: because
2: like spins not mutually exclusive on batted balls and you can have you can have backspin and and some aspects of side spin
1: yeah it's like hitting a draw and has at the same time.
2: Yeah, is there like an optimal zone for guys or I, I think that would be, I think that would be useful based on all the edger videos that we've collected of just batted ball, just crushing stuff. Do and, and you think
1: spin, spin axis from Rep would be able to, like if, if you had a large enough sample size to where you could just pull uh, like optimum batted ball spin axis from Rep and see if that like has anything there?
2: Possibly, like we, we're not a hundred percent sure with that. Um,
1: you already we already started dabbling a little bit.
2: It it it's just we so we were we were trying to match up. Uh, we were using the edger, and at times we could tell that it was picking the wrong spin axis. But in its defense, like we were swinging with a negative forty five degree attack angle and hitting yeah. the, top of the ball and trying to put backspin on it. So like <laughs> yeah that type of batted ball would probably never happen. And so that's why we were just assuming it's predictive algorithm went with the most likely scenario. Right. Uh, so there, we, we do have some time where it was the spin axis was wrong, but it was, it was right more often than, it was yeah. Gone. And yeah. so that's why we're like, well, we don't, we know that it's right the majority of the time, but we're not sure how many times it's right. And then right. Dr. Nathan has, uh, Told me it's pretty easy uh, during my thesis defense, he had told me it's pretty easy to get the Rap Soto and build, build out like a high speed uh, system to where you could measure bat speed and stuff just using the camera and markers inside the frame. Say
1: that again. <laughs>
2: uh so during my thesis defense, uh Dr. Alan Nathan was was on my thesis committee and he was telling me it's 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 actually pretty easy to get an Edgeronic camera and build out markers in the frame, and then you can measure speed and velocity of the bat and stuff. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I'm with you. By
2: I'm how with fast it. they're they're going past each marker.
1: Okay. Well, so whenever you guys use Edger for your players, what frames per second do you what, what do you put it at?
2: Uh I usually put it at five hundred. That's kind of okay. usually where I keep it at. Yeah,
1: that's usually around where we're at. we're anywhere from like depending on the day, like two, two fifty or five, um, anything above five is probably too much for, for a swing. Your, your video will be three minutes long for one swing. If you, do that.
2: sometimes I I crank it up just because I like watching how the bat vibrates at different points of contact.
1: So, so we,
2: we've done that a few times. I've caught one where a kid hit it right off the very end of the bat and hit a cue shot.
1: Oh, I think I saw that on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. Uh, we would, uh, it was the last summer I was at dry line in 2020. We started doing um, the the edger right behind the machine to try and get a better sense of a guy's timing and in relationship to where the ball is at in space. Um, like how many feet away is the ball whenever this guy like initiates heel strike or like a hip rotation or like at, at once his like hip starts to decel, like where's the bat or like where's the ball in relationship to whatever his arms like detached from his torso or whatever um there's a there's a lot of different rabbit holes you can go down there but the dudes the ath- the actual athletes and the hitters love the angle they thought it was it was pretty cool and i thought it was pretty cool Let's try that one.
2: uh so it takes us to our last question how do you think technology is being misused by coaches like with all the things available right now how, how do you think some uh might be misusing it
1: um, good question. I I, I think that – I think for, for a lot of coaches, they uh, – for, for Blast in particular, they're just, like, not looking at, at it in enough context. So you can probably say that for any piece of tech, whether it's battle ball tracker or bat sensor or KVS. Like, you have to look at everything in proper context. Like, you can't just be like, oh, this guy's bat speed is 76. Like, he's good um like there's so many different things he, you have to account for like where was his point of contact what kind of pitch was he facing what was his attack angle like was he able to maintain that bat speed like was he on plane for a long enough amount um like was he able to get the barrel quickly into the zone uh, and then, like what was his time of contact like was his time of contact 0.22 and he was just like hacking like hacking his bat speed and catching it super far out in front being long and strong or is that like a legitimate 74 to where his time to contact is, you know, 0.13, 0.14, and you know, he's at a decent attack angle, decent contact point. So like everything needs to be looked at holistically and in proper context. And that can go for you're bad at ball data as well. Like you can't just take your peaks and averages and like assume anything about a player. Like you need to be able to look at all right, what is his percentages between 10 and 30? Or Is he able to maintain his percentages from 10 to 30 across, you know, all five segments of spray angle across the field? Or that's one thing that I'm really interested in is better ball data by spray angle um, and how much it changes for each guy. Um, So it's like this guy just wears out the right center gap at like 99 at 15. It's just like a super productive uh, combination. Uh, But like, what does he do towards the left center gap? Is it substantially different? And then you can like pair that with spray chart and be like, okay, like he just wears this out he's really good at it. But that's like the only thing that he can do. There's like no adjustability or no, like no chance of him using any other part of the field. Or it's like, you can take that data and be like, look, dude, this is your default miss. And when you miss, this is where you miss. So like, based on that, this is how you're impacting the ball. Um, and then like, even on Kvest, like there's a, there's a number of stuff that you can look at and be like, yeah, but so, like, one that, that we ended up seeing in, in spring training a lot was like guys that we thought were quote unquote over rotated with their torso at contact. Uh, in, in reality, they're just like, they're not over rotated. They're just getting beat and they're losing posture backwards this way. And they're hacking the K-Vest and they're like tricking the torso sensor into thinking that it's continuing to rotate when in reality you're just like losing posture and the negative torso forward thing. Um, so all that stuff like needs to be looked at in proper context. I think um, that's probably the biggest thing that the coaches are, are misusing the tech with right now is just like <clears throat> almost like uh, just like tunnel vision on like this, if I can get this one metric better then like this guy's gonna rake. And, like, I wish it was that easy, but it's just not.
0: And you, I think sometimes, and this is a temptation for even in me, is you see a guy that does one thing really well, right, and that's, that happens to be the thing that you value, and so you overvalue that metric, like you just said, and you, you neglect to feed the weakness. Right. right? So you, uh, you only feed his – that guy can only pound the right center gap, and he does it just incredibly efficiently – you just you just feed in that pitch, and you never feed that weakness on the other side.
1: Yeah, you just keep him in his comfort zone forever in his honey hole, and like your your growth happens outside of that comfort zone. Like you got to get uncomfortable for, for any type of development to, to occur. Mr. Riggins, no,
2: I, I I agree with all that. Uh, I I think the one that gets maybe overlooked or misused quite a bit is attack angle uh like you can manipulate attack angle a bunch of different ways and i, I wish i wish blast would include like you know k has a graph mm-hmm. I wish that blast would include like an attack angle graph of how you got to like if you hit the ball at five how'd you get to five and how long were you at five?
1: Right. Yeah because if, if you look at their like little 3D tracer, uh the attack angle changes every single frame. So yeah. it's like how how long are you close to around five and then also like the point of contact you or for attack angle you always have to look at point of contact too. So like all right your attacking angle was 18. Did you were you just like super far out in front? Because the further out front you're gonna hit the ball, like generally speaking, the higher your attack angle going to be. And it's like, all right, do, are you do you actually have a negative attack angle or are you just getting beat all the time and just catching everything super late? Um, so it's just like, uh, it's another good example of ha- having to be able to look at everything in proper context. Was there anything else you wanted to cover? Um, I'd love to hear more about your uh, eye, patches and, uh, eye patches and ear. patches and ear Earplugs. I kept wanting to say earbuds, dude. Earplugs. Eye patches and ear. Give me uh, a. Yeah give me like well. a two minutes feel on like your your coolest findings so far, or just like a uh like a an example of like this like really unlocks something for a guy
2: uh well i'll cover the 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 eye patches because that's kind of my 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 baby and then i'll let jared do the the earplugs because that's his that's like i said that's 100 percent jared fuller on the earplugs uh that's <laughs> so cool man i'm so young <laughs> so that i i tried I started using the eye patches when I was still coaching in New Mexico. Like we were striking out 12 times a game. And so honestly, I did it out of just sheer frustration. because I, I was like, if I make them hit with one eye, maybe they'll focus more. So we did it for the whole week of spring break and we came back and New Mexico is a wood bat state. Every high school game has to be played with a wood bat. Uh, and so when we came back, we hit five home runs the first game back from oh doing gosh. All, all spring break. We hadn't hit a home run like in the previous two years. And, uh, and so the, like our, and I have the stats saved, like our first half batting average is like, is like 140 point difference. Our strikeouts went from 12 a game to a four a game, uh, extra base hits went through the roof. And so that made, that convinced me that this worked. And so then I was like, well, I need to know why this works. Uh, so now fast forwarding, it's kind of evolved and we've started to realize that it starts to kind of hack like your, your subconscious. Like I've had guys that are legally blind in one eye and they're still barreling stuff up with their good eye covered. Uh, I've had a couple of kids that have hit and they have, um, I can't think of what it's called, but they have a lazy eye that their eye can't focus. And even with their good eye covered up, they're still barreling it up. And they'll tell you, I can't see it at all. I don't understand how I'm hitting it. And th- we're doing it off of high velo. We're doing it with the different ax bats. We're doing it with all stuff. And they're still barreling the ball up uh, because subconsciously there's still some vision happening. Uh, there was a study, and it, it's it's in my neuroscience and hitting paper that's on my uh, Twitter bio, but they put these people in a dark room, and they made them do, like, jump cicades back and forth, and they told them to strike this little light that was flashing with a hammer. And it took about 15 minutes to convince them there was even a light, because, you know, the, mo- the movement of your eyes between the cicades, your brain suppresses all that. So once they convinced them to do it, they realized that they were striking with like 90% accuracy. Even though they couldn't see it, they were still subconsciously hitting it.
1: That's wild. And
2: yeah. So that's where we think we're kind of tapping in with the eye patches, is guys are starting to learn to just hit subconsciously, which you're gonna you're gonna react faster if you're using that instead of trying to use conscious thought to hit. That makes sense. I think our coolest thing on the on the on the vision side.
0: So our, our introduction, I told you prior before we hit record, I, I actually started with a 10 to one ratio, 10 bad ideas and one good idea. I've, I've cleaned that up to eight to one. And uh, it came out of a real bad idea that Robert thankfully didn't uh, dissolve our partnership, which was I got a music background. So I began to wonder if, and since everything has a, has a vibration, so a vibration will make a corresponding note. So maybe if we flooded the area with the note of a corresponding note that the ball was making, we could hack time to contact, right? And Robert just shook his head no profusely, which led me down a little more research. Well, I, I found an article that stated that uh, kids who were hearing impaired uh, had better reaction times while playing video games versus kids who could hear. And- but- what started the process? What if we put, what if we make kids deaf? Because we've all heard that, that that thing, right? That as a person who has a sense a sense taken away from them, uh, their other senses become heightened. Right. And so we didn't know what the outcome would be. We didn't tell our guys what the outcome would be. We had a kid that was uh, looking to go play some college baseball. And it was interned for us. We put earplugs on him. He hated it. He hated every minute of it. And we got done with the first session. He swung about six miles an hour faster than he ever swung in his life.
1: That's, that's insane. That's so cool.
0: We were on. We go, well, we're on to something here. And since then, it's, it's evolved like everything else where we've, we've, you know, we've figured out how to implement this thing because you said earbuds, and now we are bringing in earbuds because we're seeing similar things between guys based upon uh, personalities, if they respond better to white noise, music, or, or deaf. And so because some kids don't respond at all to being deaf they respond better to their favorite music or they respond better to white noise. But what this does is what it, we think, uh, we think um, talking to a lot of, a lot of people smarter than us is disrupt the VOR pathway and, and allow something only dedicated to vision. Because we would have guys say, I don't like this because I can't hear the ball being shot out of the machine. Well, okay, yeah. right. We well, go, well, that's not, you're not even, you're not hearing that. Not when you think it is, because the way we understand that light travels so much sound, but still, it was a cue to them.
2: Interesting.
1: Yeah, I never even thought about that. Explain to me.
2: We found that your your brain actually prefers to perceive time through hearing. So when in a way, now everything has to be synced up through vision, and we usually hear the same thing: the ball looks bigger, the ball looks slower, and Um, contact is soft. Like it's almost like because you can't hear the ping, it's almost like your brain doesn't cue right, up. It's not happening. Yeah, and it's it's like I've done it, and it I, but my first five swings I hit, and I I thought the bat was broken because it, it just felt like I was hitting a roll of toilet paper. It was it was really That's odd. Wild. Yeah, it's it's a you should try it. It's a really odd sensation. So
1: I, I'm I'm gonna try it probably tomorrow. Uh,
0: you gotta get 40 decibels or right around there. Forty decibels. Yeah, because anything less than that is not quite impairment. So now, because what we've had to do is we've got if you if you get like the best way to do is get earplugs and then put a headphone over it and you'll get about forty to fifty decibels, which is significant hearing loss, which is what that was tested at. That's where I saw that was based on that forty decibels. If you put just those those headphones on, it's only twenty decibels, and so I think still too much noise gets in. And I think things worse because then the body begins to strain, right, to hear
2: more, as opposed to just completely giving up, essentially. Yeah, yeah. re, re perception. That's what, like so one of the guys that we, they actually do our reports, he's a, he's getting his doctorate in biomechanics, and that's what he thinks. He thinks it re perception, since it's not available, well, I'm going to re-weight and put all of my energy towards vision.
1: Makes sense. What's, okay so explain to me the uh, like so differences that you first of all just like a, a quick uh, definition between the difference between white noise and pink noise and then the difference that you've seen in results of like type of player like which guys respond better to white and which guys respond better to pink Okay, yeah, so
0: we went through this is this is the rabbit hole right we've gone through and we've put our guys through a behavioral assessment these guys. Are players. Uh, the chart on four different, it's not a personality test, I hate when people call it that, but it shows how you behave, how you prefer to communicate and what your behavioral is and what environments you perform best in. And, you know, we find, you know, case in point, extreme extroverts, will you give them their favorite music? They tend to do better than when they're they're, better, right? Uh, Yeah. An introvert will do okay with, sometimes do just as well with deaf because they like to be, they like that environment. Um, white noise, and, white noise in particular affects vision. So sometimes with these rounds, we start with white noise because there's studies with people, uh, or or students, uh, kids with ADD or ADHD, or extreme disabilities, when exposed to white noise, they're able to focus on tasks more intently.
2: And well, they also we use it in Parkinson's research. Yeah. We're teaching people how to walk and stuff. It, it helped uh, with some, some motor learning skills. Interesting. And so
0: with that, you know, again, you've got kids. Let's say you've, you've got a kid who, who is not, they're not big stage people, so to speak, or they're you at 94 miles an hour. Right. Well, the introduction of pink noise and white noise begins to allow you to focus more and those external things go away. Okay. It just like, helps guys get to that next gear. It can. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. If they're, if they're timid uh, about what's about to happen to them, like in rising turbo sliders at 92. Right. But it goes into what you guys are talking about. We've talked about some other people. It becomes hyper individualistic training. Yeah. And you've got to know your guys, uh, that your guys got to trust you obviously. And you've got to, you know, they've got they even to allow you to fail with them. You know, we failed with some guys on this early. Yeah. And but they stuck with us and walked through it. And now we're we're starting to streamline these
2: processes a great deal more. But uh we've had a couple of kids like that, <laughs> that have gone from when they started with us, they were hitting it like 86, 88 miles an hour, and now they're you know, they're sophomores in high school hitting at 103 in like lots. Awesome. One of them was our the kid that broke the metal frame on the pitching machine last night.
1: Yeah, you sent me that. In a text message, that's insane. You're going hit the ball hard yeah. if you're getting that.
2: Yeah, it's like I'm a sophomore in high school yeah, too. Yeah, these are these are they still this summer. Well, they're they're playing. I'm helping Jared and, and his dad with their summer team. And I, I think we're just gonna completely end some pitchers'
1: careers this summer. <laughs> that's what that's what I like to hear, dude. And they and they've all been
0: through it and they go through it every so often, and they have their favorite. Right, and so now we know. So is
1: that is that like a? Uh, it's not something that you do every day with every player. It's just something that is like a like a re like a retest model, or like how no, do you know well,
0: when, when to do it? We know, we know it works, and we also know it's there's a staying power to it. So okay. it's Like it, it's not like if you, th- this pattern holds, but it doesn't hold for a certain period of time, and you start reverting back to the mean. Right. What we do is we go through that protocol. Uh, bat speeds increase, right? We work on vision and stuff like that with increased bat speed. And if we see that thing starting dipping again, back at the protocol again. Okay, interesting. Everything seems, everything recovers back to it. It doesn't, I don't know yet. And again, we're not quite a year into this experiment. We're six, seven months into it. And we learn a little bit more about it. I'd be, we've talked some other guys about, I think it's because of the way the brain is. The brain's lazy to return to stasis as quick as humanly possible, right? It prefers to have a dominant eye, and I think I was telling Robert, I read a study or or, or heard of a study where they took kittens, and they sewed one eye shut, right? And then they let, and then six weeks later they opened the eye, and even though the eye still was functional, the body had made the adaptation, only see that one eye, and shut the other one off. And it never recovered. Never recovered. recovered. And so the to go to stasis our goal with that or is one of them is to make sure that stasis reset is less and less right so if your low end was 55 and we go through this and we get you to 62 then hopefully you're in low end now is 57 right right keep resetting that low end uh over and over again with each new with each with each new jump
1: gotcha so you're just like raising the raising the ceiling in order to be able to raise the floor at the same time that makes sense right.
0: So it's it's been fun. Uh, it's because it's been fun because you know you've had this as well. You say you walk into drive line, and guys are like tell me what to do, tell me where to go, tell me yeah. how. To do it. Uh, so far, the the clients we've had long term. Don't get us wrong; we've had clients walk in, go through. go, I hate you guys? I hate baseball. I'm never coming back. <laughs> uh, and we've uh, had plenty of those. And uh, but the guys who stuck, you know, we can tell them to hold on to a pink teddy bear. In their teeth, and the swing a bat, and they go, okay, sure. You think it'll work? Yeah. And so we've been really fortunate for that group that stayed with us, and they, like I said, they, it, the data bears it out. You know, we've got guys that are sophomores, they're hitting the ball 100 miles an hour repeatedly, not once or twice, five, six times a session, eight. You know, hard hit averages 89. I mean, their exit average exit velocity through a system we're throwing 92 miles an hour, and their exit velocity is averaging 91, 92. That's good. That's really good. Uh, so we know it works. We know uh, how to how, how to make it work and how to, you know, keep it from completely falling apart. Because it, it, there's going to be players that hate it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the one, the first kid hated it. Even when I would show him that he went from like his his was exponential. He went from like 62 and his top end bat speed in one session was 77. Wow. And I showed him a 77. And he had never come close to that. He goes, I still hate it. He goes a guy, he goes, I'll keep doing it, but I hate it. That's what I thought we'd be on to something, because there was no false positive there, right? Right. There wasn't a guy there that was seeking an outcome. Um uh, he despised every minute of it, but the, the the data still backed up and it worked. Wow. That's one, interesting. One thing we did, we're still trying to figure out it uh it changed their it changed their attack
1: angle too. Interesting, really.
2: Well, I think it's
1: uh, we
2: I think I it, yeah, I think that's more because they're in, increased catching so it further out in front. So they're,
1: they're, yeah, so they're swinging it faster, so they're catching further out front, so they're attacking all naturally a little bit higher. Yeah,
2: that's
1: what we think. I mean that's yeah, it's pretty it makes sense to me. So that's what we're up to around here. You know, that's some cool stuff, dude. <laughs> that's some really cool stuff. I'm gonna slap an eye patch and, and some ear pa- or eye patch and earplugs on tomorrow and see if i can hack my own basketball hey if you want,
2: bestie. You, may, you you may find yourself back in the show before the end of the year if you want to get <laughs> no chance <laughs> you want to get really crazy um, i read that you can alter your perception of time by increasing sensations of all your senses so if you you had like earplugs, eye patch, put Vicks Vapor Rub and then had like a vibrating vest on and you like. Hack- <laughs> <laughs> your your memory of that event is going to be so much slower because your brain's having to process all these all this information while you're trying to hit the pitch at the same time.
1: So do you think that's along those, the same lines of why people believe like smelling salts and Velo slaps are effective? Just you're just like just like accelerating sensors, sensory to your body, like it's just
2: extra. Well, yeah, if you, you think, uh, yeah,
1: I would
0: say from the same book though. You think about if people detail a severe accident they've been in, they experience that in slow motion. Yeah, yes, right, that's an overloading of the senses on all fronts, right there: sight, cells, sound, feel, and they experience a car accident in super slow motion. Their ability to, to their they essentially warp time.
2: Yeah, because your brain has your brain gets bogged down because it's having to take all this information from all these different receptors and, and having to process that and and then turning it into a memory at the same time or encoding it into memory at the same time. So it just it just bogs down or lags because it's having to take way more information But you're still moving at the same
1: rate of speed. Yeah. Right. Nothing's changed. You're just perceptually feel slower.
0: Right. So if you freak somebody out, can a hundred one mile an hour cutter appear to be happening over just this slow motion that's I don't
1: know we're, we're gonna find out yeah.
0: <laughs> just down there with tens units shocking guys
1: just have a stim machine set up to each guy right there in their chest because Robert read something else that loud noises have the same
0: exciting nervous system I'm like so we thought about just standing behind guys we're just blowing an ear- air
2: horn <laughs> <laughs> your, your auditory your auditory response time is like 120 milliseconds and your visual motor response time is 150 milliseconds so i was like well, what if you could you could hack that and buy an extra 20 milliseconds by like hacking those two together and so that's where we're like what if we just didn't tell guys and we just <laughs> 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 we pop off a nine millimeter behind another- <laughs>
0: yeah try it let me know how it I goes. we don't put everything out that we're doing right now. <laughs> we definitely want to be like we don't want anybody just get you know get laughed off we we've, we've gone from everything to dying baseballs red because time to contact yeah. vehicles that are colored red car red colored vehicles getting in car wrecks less often than the other and in testing oh. time contact which is not necessarily something you know we we play things close to this i guess this would be public consumption but you know, looking at maybe a red baseball or looking through red glasses to hack time to contact. So we got a yeah. guy so we in 76, but his time to contact is
1: miserable. Oh, that that makes sense. I mean, do you remember the uh, those colored, those colored uh, contact lenses that Nike came out with for a while? And then Brian Roberts was wearing them for the Orioles, and all of a sudden he's just raking. And he hit like 14 bombs in the first half of the year, and he had like nine career bombs, like, Previous to that, nine like nine dingers in his whole career, like it it that had to have something to do with it because those contacts were like bright like highlighter orange.
0: Yeah, you do that. That's that's one thing is so, you know, is there is it but it's is it a lasting effect? Right, that's the things we don't know. So if we got a bunch of red baseballs, and we hacked your timing contact. We took it from a .18 down to a .12, right? We just completely rewired everything. Does that stick? Right? Does right. that? Stick? As we go through uh, and then in transition, are you able better, better to pick up red seams? Um, yep. You know, that, that stuff there. I know that I haven't seen them. I'm pretty sure I saw when I was a kid that they used to sell glasses that would highlight the red seams. I remember those were outfield play.
1: Yeah, I, I think Oakley had uh, they had frames that were supposed to highlight red or, or, right. or white and red or whatever it was.
0: Yeah, I remember telling my dad to be a better outfielder, and he just laughed at me.
1: Yeah.
0: You <laughs> know, so yeah, we know there's value in those things, right? Why uh, why they haven't been completely explored, you know. Again, that's the nice thing about uh, Robert and I. What we do is we're two guys in a cage in Amarillo, Texas, and there's nobody that walks in and goes, you can't do that.
1: yeah. Yeah, you just get the ultimate autonomy to, to try anything, which is cool. I, I mean I I love I've I've been following heavy metal Twitter baseball Twitter since it started. I love seeing the the weird stuff that you guys are doing all the time. It's all it's always different. It's like some guys, some some days you you post an editronic clip of, of a just smoking a bang. <laughs> a <tea. laughs> and, then, and the next day is just like uh Andrew clip of a vibration of a ball coming off a bat, and then the next one you guys are talking about. I passes in your plugs. is awesome. I'm super. <laughs> Just
0: like why? And, and here we are going. How come nobody takes us more seriously? <laughs> on Twitter for no reason. That's why nobody takes you seriously. That's what, that's what the people want.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's great.
0: <laughs> well, I, we appreciate your time. We really do. Uh, thank you so much uh, for sitting down, talking to us, and uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk to guys like you who. Uh, Especially for a guy like me, like I said, complete outsider looking in. I don't have the pedigree that you or Robert have, so it's always, uh, always a real privilege for me to talk to guys like you. So I, I appreciate you taking the time.
1: Yeah, of course, guys. That was a lot of fun. Um, and I'll be in touch with both of you to, to stay on, uh, stay on top of what you guys have got. But yeah, it was fun. Appreciate you guys for having me. Yes, sir. See you. There, guys.